at City Light, we study the Bible every week because we believe that it's God's word and as it is read and taught clearly, it is God speaking to us. Today, we are reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26, heading to chapter 4, verse 7. The words will come up on the screen behind me. Galatians, chapter 3, starting at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God. Thanks so much, Felicity, for reading that. It's um, great to be with you this morning. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And great to have you along with us. If this is your first time at church or if you've been coming for a long time, whether you are yourself a follower of Jesus or whether you're just kind of, you've got questions about the faith, it's really good to have you here. And it's a great series to be getting into. About six weeks ago, we started this series in Galatians. And even on the first week, I could kind of get a sense that like there was just like a, a refreshing kind of, you know, nature to getting into Galatians. And I couldn't tell at that point whether it was because of like just God's word doing its work or whether it was because we'd been in the book of Matthew for like a year and it was just like anything, <laughs> anything different after that was going to be great. But I think as the weeks have kind of gone on, it's probably become clear that this is a message that is really timely for our church and maybe for all churches, I don't know. But just getting back to the simplicity of the gospel and the simple truth that you are saved by grace and not works. And you would think people who'd followed Jesus, maybe even for their whole life, would have got it by now. But for whatever reason, we just don't. And we need to hear again and again that it's grace, 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 not works, works, works. And so my prayer is that as this morning as we open up God's Word, that you'd be refreshed again by the simplicity of the Gospel. And this teaching in the Scriptures, which we call adoption, that is that in the, in the Gospel, in grace, you are saved by nothing that you do, but you're adopted into God's family. And this matters because it has everything to do with how we relate to God. I reckon there are many wrong ways of relating to God. The first one I'd like to call God as deputy principal. I don't know how things went at your high school, but I think it's the case that at most high schools, the principal is like the nice one. So if you get called into the principal's office, it's usually for an award or, or it's a heart-to-heart -heart because you've gone a bit off the track. But when you go to see the deputy... That, he only serves up one meal and it's busted custard every time, right? And so whether, whoever it was at whatever school, the deputy principal, she or he would be the absolute disciplinarian. They were also the ones that had to make up for teachers who maybe weren't that good at getting their class under control. The one stick that they could hold was like, I'll get the deputy in here. And that was their one sort of role. But some people relate to God in this way. I remember meeting a girl through youth group who her mum 
who really lived a life that probably showed that she didn't know the gospel or hadn't been transformed by grace. And the one time that God would be mentioned in that household was as a giant threat. If this girl had done something really bad at school or outside of school, that's when God's name was invoked. It's like, if you do that, God's going to come down on you. He's going to punish you, this, that, and the other. And so for this girl, the way that she understood God was as a giant deputy principal. That's the one that comes in when you've done really bad and he comes in with a big stick to sort you out. That's God as deputy principal. One that's probably more common maybe in our culture is God as emergency services. That is, is largely absent from life and you only call him when something's gotten really bad. So you don't call triple O and they say, hello, triple O, would you like fire ambulance or police? And you say, well, actually, I've just had a bad day and I wanted to have a heart to heart. If you did that, you're going to get hung up on pretty quick because, of course, you only call emergency services in an emergency. And I think many people relate to God in that way. Certainly before I came to know God through Jesus, that was how I related to God. I lived my life like basically he didn't exist, but there was a few occasions I can remember where things got really out of hand or when I got into really bad trouble. And in that moment, I'd be like, it was just to throw it out there and see if there's, if there's someone who can help me in this moment, maybe it's God. That's God as emergency services. Then there's God as Tiger Dad, which I, I'm just using as the, the counterpart to Tiger Mom. But this is the dad who largely is just involved in his own stuff, his own work or his own hobbies, but gets involved in your life when you're into something that he's into. So if you're doing well at sports or academics, then suddenly dad is really present and involved and encouraging. And when you're not, he's elsewhere. And some people feel like that's what God is like. He's only interested in me when I'm doing really well, when I'm doing all the right things. That's when God wants to know about me. When I'm reading my Bible, when I'm being really godly, that's when God wants to be involved in my life. But when things are going a bit astray or just a bit flat, He doesn't want to know about me. But all of these ways of relating to God are what you would call anthropomorphic. That is, where you find a human example of an authority figure and then you project that onto God. And most human-made religions are like that. You observe something in humanity and then you just supersize it and call it God. And most of these ways of relating to God are just like, well, we just imagine these are ways that we see authority figures working in our life, so we imagine that's how God is. But the whole point of the Bible is that it's a supernaturally written word where God speaks into human history and tells us what he is like. And that we could not know what God is like if he did not intervene in human history and tell us what he is like. And what we're going to read from Galatians 3 today is that God wants to communicate one thing about his nature, that God is a good father. That the primary way of understanding God and of relating to God because of the gospel is as a good father. Not deputy principal, not emergency services, not tiger dad, but a good father. See, the thing about the gospel is that the most amazing thing about it is not that you get forgiven. It's not that Jesus died and rose for you. It's not even that the Spirit gives you a new heart, that you might have faith in Jesus. The highest privilege of the gospel is that you get to call God Father. And all those other things are just a means to an end, a glorious means to a glorious end. But the central point that we're going to get to in Galatians here, the center point of the faith, is that all of this has happened. The grace of God has gone this far so that you might be brought into relationship with your heavenly Father. And that you might relate to him as a heavenly father. So I'm going to pray that God would do that work in our hearts this morning.
Let's pray. Father, we pray that we this morning would be able to set aside distraction and to focus on your word and that your spirit that you have sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, might reveal your word with new depth to us this morning. That it may be the case that there are some here who are hearing this gospel message for the first time and others maybe for the 50th or 1,000th or whatever it is. But we pray this morning that it would strike us afresh, that we would grasp the simple truth that because of the grace of the gospel, we can call you Father and know you as Father. And we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. So the beautiful thing about the gospel is that you get to know God, the creator of the universe, not as a distant deity, but as your heavenly Father. And then, of course, the, the next question becomes, well, who can possibly know God? Who can have this relationship with him? And Paul here in the letter wants to say, anyone, absolutely anyone. Look at what he says in Galatians 3, 26 to 28. It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have, been, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. This is the biblical teaching of union with Christ, that when you trust in Jesus, you actually become united with Jesus, so that you, like him, are called a son of God. You inherit that status. And when you're in, united in Christ, you inherit what he inherits, and the privileges that he has as the Son of God. Now don't be put off by the language here, saying here that everyone becomes sons of God. The Bible mixes up gendered language metaphors at various points. In Revelation 21, the church is the bride of Christ, so men are brides and women are sons and all of this back and forth. But the main point of it here, the reason they use this language, is I think helpful. Because it's saying, it's trying to emphasize here that when you trust in Jesus, who is the Son of God, that you too become a son of God. Now some translations have tried to use the language of children of God, but I think it misses the gravity of the illustration here. It misses the gravity of the point that you are made one with Christ. That's how closely connected you are with Him. Whatever He inherits, you inherit. The way He relates to the Father is how you now get to relate to the Father. And to make it even clearer that this is inclusive, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Any possible category you've got, he's trying to say, is out. Anyone can know God in this way because of the gospel. See, he's saying that culture is not a barrier to being a son of God. It doesn't matter what language you speak, what culture you are from, what country you are from, what color of your skin. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. It does not matter. Culture is no basis for your standing with God. Then he says, class is not a barrier. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor, educated or uneducated. Most of Jesus' disciples were uneducated and broke. And to clear it all up, he says, there is neither male nor female. In an ancient Near Eastern Jewish culture, who had the most status? It was a Jewish free man. And who had the least status? Who was the most vulnerable? It was a foreign female slave. And Paul says, in Jesus, they are one. There is no distinction. Equal. 
See, the gospel swept through the ancient world as a radically equalizing force. Because of this teaching of union with Christ, that you are one in Christ Jesus. So what the gospel did was it took people who had status and brought them low. People who had status and power and money, the gospel brings them low because no matter how rich or influential you are, it has no sway about your standing with God. There is only one way to come to God. It's to admit that I'm a sinner who cannot help myself, that I would be at the mercy of God and Almighty God to stand before Him, and I would have nothing to justify my case. And as a wealthy, powerful, influential person, you would have to admit that you had no power to save yourself. It brought the mighty low, but it gave people who had no status, it raised them up. Those who are considered marginalized, who are at the very edges of society, who were considered worth nothing, were given equal status as sons of God, were brought in. Paul says they are one in Christ. And this is the Christian teaching of adoption. That when you believe in Jesus, your sin is washed away and you are brought into the family of God and now everyone who is in Christ is one in Christ. You can think of it in this way. Some friends of ours, family friends, had adopted two kids. They had three kids, and when their youngest was, I think, seven years old, they adopted two kids from foster care. And if you know anything about it, it's a very, very difficult process. And at the time, they were brother and sister, uh, three and a five-year-old. And part of uh, the foster process was that they, would, they were part of the family for a while before they could be fully adopted. And after a certain amount of time being in the family life and in the family unit, they were actually finally able to adopt them. And at that point, what happened was their status, though they'd been treated that way previously, became official. Their surname became exactly the same as the surname as all the other kids in the family. They called mum and dad, mum and dad, just like all the other kids in the family. Now, when their parents pass away and leave an inheritance, it will be divided between the five kids, not the three kids, because they get equal status. Once they're adopted in, they are like their very own kids. This is the privilege of the new covenant, that you get adopted into God's family. You get equal status. You get to call Christ brother. Now, we don't get his status as Lord and King, but as a human who lived as a son of God, we get equal status with him. So we inherit what he inherits. We become co-heirs with Christ. And not only that, but we get to call God Father just like Jesus did. And this is only a recent privilege when you look at the people of God. Look at what he says next in Galatians 3.29. He says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul says, if you believe in Jesus, you are Abraham's offspring. You're a part of the people of God. That promise that was made to Abraham that he would reach all nations is now true because you're a part of the family of God. And then he goes on this funny trail about heir and slave and all of this. And firstly, he says that the heir is no different to a slave when a child. 
You're like, what, what is he actually going on about here? The, the point that he's trying to make is that at that time, even though an heir was about to inherit everything, that really they hadn't experienced the full benefits of it yet. Now to point something out, if you aren't aware of it, is that slavery at Paul's time was not what we talk about when we talk about New World slavery. New World slavery was what came about when largely colonial powers went to other countries, mainly Africa, and abducted men, women, and children and sold them into lifelong generational slavery. One of the greatest crimes against humanity ever committed. And so when we read that word, we usually read it through that lens, but that was not how it worked in the ancient world. It was considered at that time just a, a legitimate form of employment. You couldn't be a slave for life. It was a set amount of time. It was usually to pay off a certain amount of debt. And when you did it, you would live with the family. You'd be provided accommodation and food and all of these things. It was just a legitimate form of employment. And that's why Paul says here that actually the heir of the owner of the estate could have pretty much a parallel life to the slave child because ultimately they would live pretty parallel lives and were potentially even friends. And he says even though one of them is about to inherit the entire estate, their life could look pretty much the same up until a certain point. And the point that he's making here is that until that time, they really hadn't experienced the full benefit of being an heir. And why does he say this? He says the people in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament, though they were about to inherit everything, did not experience the fullness of what they were to inherit. In the Old Testament, people had a kind of a closeness with God, but nothing like what we have now on this side of Jesus. That's why in the Old Testament, God is very rarely called Father. The main term or the address for God in the Old Testament is Lord. And not only that, but God's name in the, in the Old Testament was Yahweh, and people were so reverent about God that they didn't, they didn't even speak that word. Instead of saying Yahweh, when they came to read that word in Scripture, they would say instead, Lord. There was always a sense of closeness with God and yet distance. Even their cultural life was meant to demonstrate that there was a distance between them and God. The reason that the temple had a curtain that you could not go behind, that only one person, the high priest, could go behind it once a year, was to demonstrate that there was a distance between God's people and God because of sin. There was a barrier. They were reminded over and over again by the law. That's why Paul says here they were kept under the guardianship of the law. It reminded them that no one could be justified before God by our own works, and it reminded them that there was this gap, this chasm between humanity and God. But then Jesus comes. Look what it says in Galatians 4, 4-5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Now that Jesus has come, we experience the full benefit of being adopted in as God's people. And Jesus himself demonstrated this closeness with God. When he talked about God, he talked about him as his heavenly father. That was the main term that he used. And Jesus came and lived under the law and lived perfectly to redeem us from the curse of having to obey the entire law, died the death that we should have died and rose again that we can have new life in him. 
And not only that, but he sends his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The main work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus, is to show you that God is your Father. To show you how close you can be with God. The Spirit shows us that God is ultimately our Father. You can think of it in this way, from Old Testament to New. Over the last few years, we've had various lockdowns. I realize nobody wants to bring that up at this point. You're like, we've had enough, can we just not talk about that anymore? But over those times, what would happen was you were separated largely from your families. And so during those lockdowns, unless everyone you happened to know and like lived within a 5K radius, and even then you had to do shifty things like we're going for an exercise walk or something like that. Um, but all of that meant that there was this separation between us until COVID, at least a certain degree, had been dealt with. And it was a reminder constantly that there was this barrier between us. But once that was finished... We could be reunited. In the Old Testament, the problem of sin kept God separate from his people. But once Jesus arrives and solves the problem to sin, suddenly his people can be close to him. We can call God Father. And the Spirit shows us that God is your Father, that he loves you, that he is for you, that he's your ultimate creator, though we have earthly parents as well, and that he is the ultimate example of a father. This is what the Spirit shows us. And you, you can overcook this. Some people have said of this word, Abba, that it was kind of like the, like the kids, a sort of a childish term for father, like papa or things like that. And so it has that kind of like childish intimacy to it. The truth is that's probably not quite the sense of the word. There were words that they could have chosen that communicated that same sentiment. And I always felt a little bit uncomfortable. The idea of praying to Dada, just as a grown man, I just... I mean, not that you build theology on what you vibe with, but it just didn't vibe quite right. But it is helpful to know that Jesus chose the word Father. When his disciples asked him how to pray, he said, start this way, our heavenly Father. And Father has a sense of closeness, but also of reverence as well. It's a right and appropriate term. And this is the work of the Spirit to give us an understanding of God's greatness, his immensity and his glory. And yet at the same time, how close we can be to him because of Christ Jesus, that you can call him Father. In fact, so much is it a privilege that the theologian J.I. Packer wrote this about it. He said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he, much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. The central privilege of the gospel is that you get to know God as Father. And this changes everything. Do you get this? If you are here this morning and a follower of Jesus, do you understand the depths of God's love for you as your Father? And to, to, make it, to put it kind of in, in starker terms, do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus? Because if not, maybe this teaching of adoption hasn't gone deep enough into your heart yet. Do you believe that God loves you every bit as much as his son Jesus? And now I'm not just saying this by way of illustration. This is literally in Scripture. So in John 17, when Jesus is praying before his disciples, just listen to his words and pay attention to what he says. 
In John 17, 22 to 23, it says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He's praying for his disciples at this point. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And, catch this, love them even as you loved me. He prays that we might be united, that we might be one in Christ, and that we would know that God loves us every bit as much as he loves Jesus. That cannot be said too much, can it? God loves you every bit as much as his very own son. Just think of the depths of this teaching of adoption in the gospel. Because it's not like regular adoption, is it? You can actually think of it more like this. Imagine a father had a teenage son, and that son was killed by another teenager. And that teenager who took the life of his own son then lost their own parents, and that this father then adopted him in as his own son and loved him as much as the very son that he had lost. That's adoption in the gospel. That we in sin had rejected God, that we would have been like those at the cross baying for Jesus' blood, and yet instead he died for us, that we might be adopted in, and that he might love us like his very own son, Jesus. Do you believe this? Or do you sometimes feel like, yeah, like I get, I get that he loves me. There's got to be some other Christians at least a little bit ahead in the queue, right? Like, I mean, yeah, he's, he loves us with your little L love, but there's a, few, there's a few that he capital L loves, a few team captains who really get the job done. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the team, so you kind of, yes, Jesus died for me, so he's got to love me as well. Or maybe even feel like he's a bit like a teacher. It's like, look, he's God. It's kind of it's his job. He has to be nice to me. It's not like, you know, it's like the teacher at school who at lunchtime you can chat to them or hang out with them, but they kind of have to. If they had their own free time, they probably wouldn't be spending it with you, right? And I think subconsciously that many times even followers of Jesus who heard the gospel again and again and again can be like, yeah, God, God loves me. I'm used to that phrase. But in reality, you're like, he couldn't quite love me that much. Or he loves me, but he probably doesn't really like me that much. Any mindset like that is contrary to what we read in Scripture. The teaching of adoption by grace is that God loves you as his son. That because of Jesus and what he has done, you are adopted in. That you are co-heirs with Christ. That you are a part of the family of God. God loves you that much. So do you know him as your father? Because if you don't relate to God as a good father, it will be very difficult to trust him, won't it? If you relate to God as the deputy principal in the sky or as the emergency services in the sky, or as the tiger dad in the sky, it will be near impossible to trust him when it counts. It will be hard to trust him in probably two areas in particular. One is with obedience. When it comes to trusting God with particularly difficult things like how we use our money, or our relationships and sexuality, or whatever it is, if you don't believe that God is a good father who tells you to do things not because he's trying to test you, but because he loves you and knows what's best for you, unless you believe that, it will be very hard to obey him with joy. The Christian life will be a grind. we are like, there's all this stuff I've got to do, otherwise dad's going to be really disappointed in me. Rather than seeing that God loves you, knows you and knows what's best for you, 
And if he calls you to do something, it's because it's for your good and for his glory. That's where joy is in the Christian life. It'll be hard to trust him with obedience unless you know him as your heavenly father. But secondly, it'll be hard to trust him in suffering. It's funny, reflecting on the, I was speaking to a few people this morning, reflecting on the last two years, it has been a bit of a shock how suddenly everyone's stopped talking about COVID. I read an article this week about how in the recent election, nobody mentioned it. It's like it never happened. These last two and a half years just evaporated like that. Now, I think part of it is because we talked about it so much that everyone's just relieved to not talk about it. So thank you for bringing it up, I guess you're saying. <coughs> but... um. But there's been something weird about the kind of... It feels almost weird to even call it suffering because there is more acute suffering and trauma in the world than, than what we've been through with COVID necessarily. But all of these disruptions, they do actually add up. And you know what's weird about it? Is at some point we'll know that it's ended and we'll never have the celebration for it. So in maybe in 2025, we'll look back and probably... See, I'm hesitant to even say it. Probably somewhere in 2022, it ended but because there was no official end date we'll just be like there'll be no chance to celebrate it and so it's this weird season where there's all these kind of stacked up difficulties or challenges that have come and no chance to kind of celebrate that they've ended i mean think about this just the sheer number of cancelled plans over the last two and a half years if you could quantify that amount of disappointment into some kind of a quotient imagine what it would be right not only that, but it's made just wherever you are in life just more challenging. If you're single, you've probably never felt more single than the last two and a half years. There were moments where you just wanted to be around another person, just physically. If you have kids, you've been absolutely punished over the last, with homeschooling or whatever, or even over the last, this last wave of sickness, how many of us today are even away just because the kids are getting constantly sick? And add to that the cancelled plans, the financial side of it, the uncertainty of everything that comes up, it's been something that's been quite challenging. And it's left everyone feeling just a bit either funny, right through to maybe even a little bit desperate or even hopeless. And it's been a season, you can say, of suffering. And it's a time where we don't necessarily know what the thing is to do about it. And it's really at these times that we need to remember that God is in control and if he's our heavenly father, then what's happening ultimately, ultimately in the end of things, will turn out for good. Because he is a good father who can be trusted. Unless we know God as a heavenly father, who is good and is sovereign and is powerful, it will be very difficult to trust him during times of suffering. Whether it's been acute or whether it's just been general and broad like over this last while. So we need to know that he is that good. And he gives us this example of, of, of fatherhood as a way of relating to it. You can think of it in this way. Two weeks ago, I had to take Asher to the dentist. And props to Dennis. Like, I hate going to the dentist. But props to Dennis for just how, how much better it's gotten since I was a kid. I come from a family where we have soft teeth. And so my, my very first experience with the dentist was I got seven fillings. That was my, right out the gate, year one. And back then, they didn't have anesthetic. Now they've got anesthetic for the anesthetic. So you get a little like, rub that numbs the area so that when they put the needle in, you don't feel it. It's amazing, right? But now I have the privilege as a dad of taking my kids to the dentist. And so the other week, I had to take my son, who had a sore tooth, and we got there, and she's like, it's got to come out. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's a baby tooth, so it wasn't that big a deal, but it meant that he was going to have to have a needle, and the needle is also the size of a child, <laughs> and so it's quite stressful for them to see. And so when he saw that, he was like a little bit panicky, and so I took him out into the other room, and I said to him, I was like, bud, I, it's, it, I can't lie to you, it will hurt a little bit, but I promise you, I wouldn't tell you to do this unless it was for your good. And I wouldn't make you go through this unless this really was the best thing. If you get this out now, it's going to save you so much pain. There's a fresh new tooth coming up underneath. It's going to be great for everyone. I said, I know it's going to be challenging this afternoon to do this and you weren't expecting it, but can you just trust me that it'll be all right? And he went back in and did it. And he was, he was a warrior through it, so well done to him. In the same way, there are going to be moments where God won't explain to us why it is that we're going through what we're going through but cause us to trust him and to trust his character that he's a good father. And there'll be things that we do get answers to, that on reflection you look back and you see how God was working for good. But there'll be other things where even to the end of our time here on earth, we will not know and it will call us just to trust in his character in the gospel that he is good and that there are things that maybe even if they could be explained to us, we wouldn't understand. There are going to be things where we'll just have to trust God and his character. And unless you believe that he is a father, we just won't trust him in those moments. But praise be to God that he has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that when we are weak, he is strong, and that we might draw in his supernatural strength to understand that he is a father, that he is good, that he can be trusted, that he is more wise, more powerful, and more good than we can even imagine. And so I'm going to pray that for us as a church community, and that over next, this next while, we might just grow in the depths of our understanding of God as our Father. And that as we sing after this, as we respond in prayer and singing, that we might just trust His goodness, whatever this next season brings. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the many who are here this morning who may be struggling to believe that You are a good Father. I just pray that you'd grant them the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to understand you, to know you, to relate to you as Father. God, we pray that you would strengthen us at this time. I pray for those who are feeling discouraged or downtrodden or just worn out, that they'd be renewed in strength and encouraged, knowing that they can trust you and that you are working for good. Father, I pray for the many things that are to come over this year that you'd give us the grace to meet them and with them to find hope and joy and meaning in you and that we might be a light in a dark world. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.